0: Welcome, happy Friday. Today's Friday, July the 22nd, and this is episode number 168 of Backyard Beekeeping Questions and Answers. My name is Frederick Dunn, and this is the way to be. So I'm glad that you're here. You might be wondering, it's hot everywhere. How hot is it here? Well, it's over 80 degrees right now, which is more than 27 degrees Celsius. And, uh, a lot going on what i did is i went around this morning so the opening sequences were all shot this morning bumblebees honeybees of course are all out there on the clover we've got dead nettles that's what the dark kind of purplish bluish blossoms were that every all the pollinators seem to like we've got milkweed still going on cosmos have just started to open we have a field of those sunflowers have not been all eaten yet by the deer and the woodchucks which are whistle pigs and marmots and whatever you want to call them ground squirrels they did not eat all of my sunflowers this year so those are yet to bloom and they'll be coming up soon and uh, that's kind of it white clover is just everywhere and the bees are all over that which makes a really light mild honey so we're in trouble right now right down to my observation hive The one that started off first of course is they're basically overloaded with honey Uh, all the colonies are overloaded with honey and we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end of it during the fluff section too because I have problems with my land's hive I'll explain those details it might not be what you think and uh, what else do we have going on I think that's it we're going to jump right in if you want to know what we're going to talk about today please look down in the video description and you'll see all the topics and related links links are going to be important today if you're joining us by Podbean, thank you for listening and thank you by the way to the truckers that are out there in traffic listening to this as a podcast so that's interesting to me that people are finding that they can pass their time listening to these videos thanks for being here So we're going to go right in, and you can find out uh, if you want to post a question, you can write that down in the comment section, of course, below this video. There's also a link to my page on the website, thewaytobe.org, and uh, there's a page called The Way to Be, and on that page is a form that you fill out. You can be anonymous. See, it doesn't require you to have email or anything like that, although you can certainly enter those things if you want to you can be anonymous. And often some people look at these videos and they say, I don't see the links, what's going on? So when you look at the video on YouTube and you look right underneath, there's a condensed header down there, but it'll say show more. And if you click on that little show more button there, that's when it all opens up. And I wanna thank Adam Holmes every single week for itemizing and putting timestamps to every question. So shout out to Adam please tell him right along with me, how much you appreciate the work that he does. He does it just because he wants to. So thank you for that. Let's jump right in. And uh, the YouTube channel of the person that posted this question is whoever it. Okay. So it says, uh, I'd like to ask is why do might wash, in other words, why when doing a might wash, does everyone say, dawn dish soap and uh can any generic dish soap work or is it specifically only dawn so i can't take credit for that of course and what we're talking about is for those of you who do mite washes and mite counts and i highly recommend even if you're a treatment-free beekeeper that you need to know what kind of mite loads your colonies are under what kind of stress they're enduring and what kind of disease load They might be dealing with and it's not always evident exactly what's going on but when you have mites and they're feeding on your bees they're feeding on their fat body stores we have an interview coming up this week that's going to be very interesting about that but i won't spoil it and uh, so the damage can be sublethal in other words by being treatment free and don't get me wrong whatever you choose whatever path you choose we still want to know what's going on so there's the treatment side of the house treatment-free side of the house, and then there are those kind of in the middle that do light treatments on their worst colonies. So counting and knowing uh, what your bees are dealing with is going to be very important. And the reason this came up is there are ways to check for Varroa destructor mites, and I've done this in the past to give demos and things and sometimes like in the winter wintertime uh, when we scrape out a bunch of dead bees. I do mite washes on them just for kicks and grins to see But is that a meaningful way to assess whether or not you have a mite problem in your hives? Not really, because if there are living bees, that's where the mites are going to dwell. They're gonna stay on the host that they can feed on. They get on their abdomen up in between the plates there and uh, they feed on the soft tissues of your bees. So it's really bad. So just because you test or wash dead bees, as a way of examining to see what's on the landing board which i highly recommend by the way you get fun information that way it doesn't indicate whether or not you've got uh, a mite problem so sometimes we have to count and when you count them you have options the sugar shake method is the non-lethal method widely recognized but less accurate And that's where people will come right out of another seminar or somebody else that they listen to and they like to point out right away you're not going to get an accurate count unless you kill the bees and do a thorough mite wash which really gets the most mites off of your nurse bees and but my answer to that is if you can learn to do the sugar shake method and when you do that if you come up with a number of mites that requires treatment so Well, what's the treatment level? Well, when we get a half a cup of bees and we scoop those out, and hopefully those are nurse bees because those are the ones most likely to have mites on their bodies. Uh, When you get those and you count them, if you have three or more, that's more than a 3% load. This time of year, if you only had three mites per 300 bees and you had a 1% load, I would consider that very good. And one of the reasons why it's really important to be talking about this now is because your window of opportunity here in North America to treat for the mites is narrowing before we get into that fall nectar flow and before we get into those critical super healthy winter worker bees that we're going to need so treating now creating brood breaks now we're coming to the end of our window of opportunity to do that so for those of you who are treating, this is the time to really get things under control before we go into the next big nectar flow, which is the final push for your bees to get ready for winter. So we're not just storing winter resources in the form of pollen, and also they're going to be storing honey, which is you know why most people associate honey with honeybees, and that's the biggest thing that you can take off. But uh, this is the time when we can still do a treatment, do a split, and come up with a colony that still has enough resources to get them through winter. So those physical resources for food are critical. But another critical aspect is maximizing the health of the bees, the gut material, and everything else before you start to produce the bees that will carry you through winter. So this is multi-layered, and it's very important. But now, you know, I took you the long way around the barn on that one, but I want to tell you about... If you can do the sugar shake and you meet the threshold, then you already know that you're treating. So why do another more thorough check? And the other thing is, uh, for those of you who are using the B Scanner app, B scanning, uh, you take with your phone photos of four quadrants of a standard Langstroth deep brood frame. And when you do that, again, uh, people will say, "Yeah, but you know those Varroa are up under." the abdomen of the bees, they won't show when you do a scan on the surface, but a lot of aerodestructor mites do show. And again, if you meet the minimum threshold, when you take those digital pictures, which by the way, they upload to the site, they give you the feedback right away, and it indicates which bees, which zones might have problems, and you can zoom in, look at that, and if you see a mite on the thorax of your bee, you've got problems. So there again, it, it saves you the time of having to count mites by doing sugar shakes or doing mite washes. And that's because you already met a minimum threshold with this digital topographical gathering of information. So these are are a lot of ways for you to find out if your bees are at a treatment threshold. So, now what happened is scientific beekeeping, that's Randy Oliver, he does a lot of stuff. If you're brand new and you've never heard of scientificbeekeeping.com, You want to go there and check things out. I'm going to put a link down to this particular study. And the reason is he did tests of mite washes. So in other words, the goal, of course, is to collect 300 bees and to collect them in a tub. And then, you know, you scoop them up until you get a half a scoop of half a cup of bees, which has been roughly figured out to be 300 bees. Then you put that into a mite wash container. So there's a lot of different companies that make them. I guess I can put a link to one down there. I use a couple of different kinds. But um, the thing is, the mites have to come off of the body of the bees. So this is what we call a release agent. So one of the things, we want to be humane to the bees too. So the bees are going to be killed if you're using detergents or if you're using alcohol, right? So Randy's pretty thorough. His method is scientific and therefore he tests a variety of things. So he even did windshield washer and things like that, isopropanol, but not just isopropyl alcohol, but percentages of alcohol all the way up to, I believe, 90% or higher. So because some alcohol, even when we're preserving specimens to be shipped off for testing, might be at 74% or in the 70s. And it is amazing what the Varroa destructor might can survive because even to the testing after the wash, where the mites release from the bees. So that's one phase of the test, putting the bees in solution, <clears throat> and even before agitating them, uh, waiting to see if mites would come off on their own, and then collect on the bottom, and then these are translucent. You look through them. I dump mine out on large coffee filters, and I put that coffee filter in a colander so that I can hose water over that and rinse away the soap or whatever material you put the, be- the bees in suspension on, and then that gives you a clear contrasting view so you can see those varroa destructor mites. Um, So what he did was he tested all these other solutions and a clear winner for one, killing the bees quickly. They're gonna die anyway in that solution in the wash method. And so you want that to happen quickly and you want the mites released quickly and thoroughly. The more mites, the better, because then we get a better count how many mites are on the bees percentage-wise and then uh so don dish detergent worked better than uh all these other things that he tested even i think he even tested like um coolant so like the stuff you put in your radiator i don't know it was thorough but the bottom line was top two contenders for killing the bees and releasing the mites in a timely fashion because he's a commercial guy he doesn't have time to do around like the backyard beekeepers like myself Who can take a lot of time to wait and see and have coffee and look at what's going on because we're only going to go through five or six hives maybe that day. Um, So what happened was Dawn, free and clear, uh, actually released mites without agitation better than the alcohol wash. Now it was interesting too that these mites could still live. (laughs) So that's the amazing part. Bees are dead fairly quickly and I'll get into that in a second too but uh, the mites themselves once the wash was done the count was done he dumped them out on a uh, nice contrasting white paper and then he waited and watched to see what percentage of the mites recovered and walked away so that's troubling if the mites can really handle that I don't think it's a real concern because when we're shaking and uh, washing bees for mites uh, we don't tend to put them back inside the hive and the chances of that might getting back on a healthy bee and finding its way back into a colony somewhere extremely rare impossible no very unlikely so then the question that we get to after all that conversation is uh Dawn free and clear this is it pure essentials and i'm going to put a link to it i buy this stuff this is the concentrate and uh One of the things that I think about on this, first of all, let's talk about how it even works. Why does this kill bees? Why does dish soap kill bees in general? Well, what's the design of the dish soap? To break down grease, to break down fats, and all the things that people deal with in their kitchens, because let's be honest, the real purpose of this stuff is to wash your dishes. They even have a version of Dawn, of course, that goes in dishwashers for those who have automatic dishwashers and things like that. But for me, one of the reasons I was really excited about uh, the testing that Randy did is uh, because I have my own private water source. So I'm on a well. I also have my own private septic system. So we are thinking more about the environment here than other places where people who have city water, treated water and sewage and things like that. Mine uh, affects how I treat my entire property. So that's why I don't use herbicides and things like that on my property. I don't use insecticides because I'm mindful of the fact that ultimately anything that goes out there into my leach field is going to make it to the water table. And it's going to possibly make it into my well, which subsequently comes back into the house, goes through a filter system, and then we could be drinking or bathing in that water. So the cool part of Dawn Ultra is And I went to their website because I wanted to be correct on everything. Uh, Dawn Ultra Free and Clear. It has essential oils in it. You get the lemon scented and there's a lavender scented version. I like the lemon scented version. Uh, Randy Oliver's son also preferred the lemon scented version. It has three times grease cleaning power. So what does that mean when you're soaking a bee in it? I'll get to that and it's biodegradable. So in other words, the reason I really like this is because if you're doing mite washes outside or if you're using this to clean up other equipment, uh, it rinses clean and everything that comes off of it, the suds that are going out there are biodegradable. So we're not creating a biohazard in the environment. That's why I like it. So the other thing is, how does it work? If we look at honeybees, and I hope you do, hope you look at them really close. Honeybees have hairs all over their bodies and they get wet. Also, probably more critical this time of year, honeybees get extremely dry. So the whole thing, you ever think about why a honeybee dies after it stings someone and and flies away and pulls the stinger out of its abdomen? Uh, Sure, that's traumatic damage. That is profound damage to the body of the honeybee, but it actually dehydrates. So the bee dries out because now it's damaged its exoskeleton it's damaged its abdomen and uh, it can't control that anymore so one of the ways that honeybees protect their bodies from dehumidification and also from getting too wet they have what's called a cuticle on their exoskeleton and this cuticle is waxy and so because it's waxy when water hits them the water might get their hair soaked but it doesn't migrate through uh, the spiracles and things like that that are also on the body of the bee so bees have a natural kind of greasy defense waxy defense on their body known as the cuticle so what happens is now we're introducing a degreaser and uh, this is going to defeat the cuticle and also it increases the wetting ability of water So if you've ever taken a drip of water and just put it on, you know, a piece of glass or something, or even on the leaf of a flower or the leaf of a plant, you'll notice that it beads up, there's surface tension on the little bead of water, and it can run down. But also, plants protect themselves from the penetration of water, from the wetting ability of water, except on the hairs, for example, which helps them to bring in water when the plant needs it so now if you take that same water and you add some dish detergent like dawn you'll find out it doesn't be like that anymore that we've defeated the surface tension of the water and increased its wetting ability so in other words its ability to sink into tiny fissures and cracks and openings much easier on its own so that's what it does defeats the cuticle of the bee and also enter smaller openings like the spiracles and things like that on the bees so that they get defeated much quicker, and that's humane. The argument could be made that bees don't feel pain, bees don't suffer, but we definitely want to take them out quick. If you're going to kill a bunch of bees to do mite counts, let's do that. And the irony is that the mites live through that. That is shocking stuff. percentage of them making of course most die now which which of all these solutions had the highest mite count kill where the mites did not walk away later it was the isopropanol that was over 90 percent. so you can read the study it's going to be down there too also you know why this instead of isopropanol well this stuff is dirt cheap how much do you use fred in a gallon of water to make that effective i'm glad you asked two tablespoons per gallon And uh, that also works anytime you have to spray insects. If you have, you know, a hive that's out of control that you have to euthanize or something like that, it would be the same procedure. Two tablespoons per gallon, you know, mix up a five gallon thing and hose down the whole batch. And then, of course, it's biodegradable. You rinse them all off with fresh water and you're back in business, as they say. So that's why, um, why is it specifically only Dawn? He tested others. That doesn't mean that this is a comprehensive test of every available dish detergent out there. Another reason that I want to promote Dawn dish detergent is because of their environmental uh, activities. In other words, they are really one of the forerunners when there's an environmental hazard, where waterfowl and things like that, sea animals um, are impacted by oil spills and things. You'll see Dawn always at the forefront out there with uh, degreasers and things that will remove oil and help restore the animals to health and the environment. So it's a good way to give them some payback for a company that does care about the environment. Next question, number two, comes from Carol Wilkins. Fred does freezing honey kill the antioxidants and antiviral properties and can you still call it raw honey? I did a Google but science is changing fast. What do you think? Well, so here's what I think. Ah, I didn't bring my paper down here with me. Of course, I researched the classification of raw honey. In other words, what do you have to be able to claim when you're gonna say, this honey is raw? Uh, And then in other words, what else would happen to it in storage, on the shelf, and things like that that would degrade it enough to where it can no longer be called raw honey? And the specific question here is freezing honey. So I'd like to change the phraseology of that. Instead of saying freezing the honey, which by the way, could be a huge challenge because honey just becomes very viscous, for example, when you put it in your freezer. So I'll I'll say when we put honey in the freezer, what happens to it? And does it kill the antioxidants? No, it preserves the properties of the honey. In fact, uh, when you get cut comb, and you get ross rounds because that's these are all methods of doing cut comb ross rounds hog halves and then this one that uses bamboo wood and things like that so if you're having the bees build comb honey and then you're going to put that into your freezer which we all do that cycle because we want to make sure that we're not uh carrying any of the animals that feed on our beeswax, for example. No wax moth larvae, no small hive beetle larvae, and things like that. So they all have to go through a cycle in the freezer. Does the honey freeze? Well, it's at freezing temperatures for water, not necessarily freezing temperatures for honey. It just becomes highly viscous. And when it's highly viscous, it's slowing down in the freezer, which means also that not only are these things preserved, these traits, antiviral properties, antioxidants, all that stuff, but it's preventing your honey that's in the freezer from fermentation if it's too wet, for example. So I highly recommend, though, you dehydrate the honey before you put it in there if you've got wet honey that's over 20%, let's say. Uh, But you can put that in the freezer and it won't ferment. So you can hold that off until you get it all into a dehumidifier later or something like that it'll kill the eggs and it will also prevent it from solidifying or crystallization because in order for your honey to crystallize or set as they say it requires a little bit of movement in there when it gets really highly viscous in the freezer the movement's so greatly reduced that it stops that potential you don't want to sell somebody comb honey or cut comb Uh, that has crystallized in those cells. That would be bad news. So it's still classified as raw honey. Raw honey is defined as honey that comes out of the hive, kind of as is, no filtering. In other words, now it can go through a screen. So screening and filtering are different things. And it said under no circumstances would filtering take it down below one micron. But uh, you want to include bits of uh, pollen and things like that in the honey when it's raw honey and the classification of that is unchanged and it's allowed to include bits of propolis bits of wax bits of the bees and of course the valuable pollen and everything that everybody likes to see in their raw honey so it is not when you put it in the freezer that is not considered a process that degrades the honey so there you go. There are other things that can mess it up. I mean, if you filter down below 200 microns, for example, you probably can't claim that it's raw honey anymore because now it falls under the screening or filtering. And you can look that up under the U.S. Department of Agriculture if you want to. I'm going to put a link down below so you can read all the properties of the different classifications of honey. Because there's raw honey, there is screened honey, there is filtered honey, and so on. So all of these things, they don't go into great detail regarding what attributes are missing then from honey that's been through that process. Next question, number three comes from Sarah Witt. Is there a way to tell if an abandoned hive is being robbed or if a new colony may be moving in? Uh, to abandon hives we lost the bees last year i looked at them and a month ago not a single activity or live bee for that matter when i checked it this weekend i saw lots of bees flying in and out and they don't look as frantic as the video you show when the hive is getting robbed but you do see clusters of bees that seem to be fighting there and there fighting here and there Sorry. But for the most part, the traffic looks steady. It's been going like this for at least a couple of days. At what point can I check to see if maybe I got lucky with a new swarm or if it was just bees robbing the abandoned hive? So this is landing board inspection time. And I thought i covered this in this video that's referenced here. And I will put a link to that video that shows robbing and kind of what to do and what what the bees behave like. It's one of those cases where, you know, an ounce of prevention is a pound of cure because once guards are defeated, once scouts from other colonies get past them, get in there, get a reward in the form of honey, that's the number one thing they're robbing. And once they get back out and get back to their other colony, and it's always gonna be some big colony with thousands of surplus foragers ready to go that come back and ultimately can defeat them. But, uh, it's rare for a newly installed colony of bees. So if they moved in on their own, because that kind of sounds like what the question is here, did a colony of bees move in, did a swarm move in? And this can happen to stored equipment, it's happened to me. Uh, just the equipment sitting on the shelf, you just look over there and there's bees coming and going and they've, they've moved in. So what's the distinction? When we're looking at the landing board, is it clean and organized? Do you see bees flying into that entrance that are carrying pollen on their legs if they are they're coming to feed developing larvae so raiders and robbers bees that are going in to steal from other colonies are not bringing provisions with them so they won't be bringing pollen and resources Uh, the other thing is there are specific behaviors that you'll see on the landing board when bees are robbing they've loaded and gorged on everything they can get and then when they come out of the landing board you'll see several bees that'll twirl their abdomen. They'll pause and they're like, it's like they're adjusting their gear before they take off. Their rear end just like spirals around and twists and churns and off they go. The other thing is, are any of the bees dragging out dead bees? Are they cleaning the hive? Are they doing housekeeping? Because it was unoccupied before, you should see bits of wax and things like that being taken out by bees. Maybe some old propolis. Maybe if there were any waxworms in there at all, you'll see them dragging out, you know, the cobwebby looking stuff that's left by the waxworms. So the other thing is the landing board <clears throat> would be strewn with debris. So you would see a little bit, and pieces of wax laying on the landing board because they're robbing. They're not taking ownership of it. They're not cleaning it up. So those are all indicators. And also they're tracking... Uh, dirty feet and so what happens then is because they're getting into the stored honey and they're robbing it out as they come out their feet are sticky and so they you'll see little daubs of uh, brown material just little little spots of it on the landing board that seems to get dirtier and dirtier so nobody's house cleaning and it's like dirty footprints coming out of that entrance so there's so many different things that show because Some of the behavior that's described here, some of them are fighting on the landing board. Even robbers sometimes scrap with each other. So it's almost like one of the strong colonies that's in there robbing it out. It's like they bring their own defenses with them to some degree. It's not like guarding the hive, but what they're doing is they're kind of pushing out or putting pressure on uh, bees that are coming from other competing colonies. And so you do see these little skirmishes, but you have to look at the whole picture cleanliness the time spent there are is pollen coming in and if there are guard bees stationed at the landing board facing out trying to check all the other bees that are coming in that's a good sign that someone has taken ownership of the hive so the last part of this is when should i inspect well if you don't mind them robbing it out you know i don't know but i personally would take a look in there fairly quickly but see what's going on on the landing board first if you still have questions if it looks like robbing go ahead and inspect Uh, because you want to see what resources are there and we want to stop the robbing too so you're going to be closing it up you can put a screen in front of that number eight hardware cloth or something like that so there's air movement through there but you don't want to uh, have bees coming in and when would you do that you do that at night go ahead and finish out the day once you know that's a robbing event put the screen on at night and that way we're not hopefully trapping too many bees in there. There will be some bees that will be stuck in there that will be just caught and they're too late. They're the robbers that are still in there when the gates go down and they're stuck and they wait until you know the store opens up the next day and then they run out. So, it's interesting stuff and uh, you should look for those behaviors. And then of course, keep us posted on what you learned. Question number four comes from beginner. That's the YouTube channel name. Have you done a video about wax dipped, I'm sorry, let me backtrack. (laughs) You have done a video about wax dipped Hoover hives and I have purchased them and I'm using them. Haven't had any problems with them so far, but I'm barely into my second year of beekeeping. I love the way they look and the convenience of not needing to paint or stain and varnish them. I recently heard another beekeeper say, hoover hives are treated with the wrong kind of wax, and problems with the boxes holding up can occur. Would you mind commenting with your thoughts about these hive boxes? Wondering if I should be prepared to replace them or if I can count on them for a while. Thank you for your time. Okay, so here's the thing. Uh, Hoover hives I did do a review of them and I have three out in the bee yard and by three I mean they're on three different hives but they're different Hoover boxes and uh, first of all we can address the first question and the information has to come from the manufacturer because I can't do spectroanalysis analysis on how the hives how the wood was treated but we have to go with what they did and what they claimed to do so they say the first coating is earth wax now some people go earth wax what's that that's you know what does that mean it doesn't tell me anything well if you look at people who do wax dips uh cayman reynolds there are a lot of people that set up big vats uh jeff horshaw mr ed uh, he has you know heats up wax and dips them i also believe he drove a truckload of boxes and had them dip somewhere else So here's the thing, the first dip that they do in order order to get the temperature up enough to drive moisture out of the pine, which is the number one thing the boxes are made out of, they don't use beeswax, nobody does. Well, nobody that wants to get those temperatures and get that reaction from the wood, they use paraffin. So, or a paraffin blend of some kind. So when I checked in on uh, what earth wax is, it's paraffin, and it's also amended with a mineral called ozokerite. Now I'm going to spell it for you because I might be mispronouncing it. It's O-Z-O-K-E-R-I-T-E. So it's paraffin and ozokerite. And then the final dip. So now they must have a separate tank. And the final dip is 100% real beeswax. So these are the functions of it though. So that it'll help people understand that the first treatment is to get moisture displaced from the wood and replace it with this paraffin based wax that, that can be taken to a higher temperature and then of course the final is 100 percent beeswax and that makes sense to me so if there are other people doing that another way or if they're using 100 beeswax and they're getting just as good you know a process out of it that that lasts a long time now the second part is how are they holding up um I do see patches on some of mine where it's discoloring on the surface. I can't say that it's rotting yet. So we will see. We should get a lot of years out of it. And so I think two or three years down the road, we can revisit these hives and look to see how they've held up. I did find out that my bees like to chew on them. So that's, that was another issue entirely was where the boxes come together. And I had a standard uh, pine box up above that was painted. And then we had the Hoover Hive box as the root box down below. They actually chewed an opening. And the interesting part of that is it's in one of the hives. It has a north-facing landing board and a north-facing entrance. And where do they chew this opening? On the south side of that hive. So if we're listening to our bees and looking at what they want to do, they want their opening on the hot side of the hive on the south side. They don't want it because they did this chewing during winter time, which is kind of interesting to me. Uh, but anyway, they were able to chew the Hoover hive, but they did not chew through the box up above that was just painted three-quarter inch pine. So it was interesting, and that information, of course, you know, as I said, it comes from the company that makes it, uh, the Hoover hives, and that is GalenaFarms.com, G-A-L-E-N-A-F-A-R-M-S.com. So you can write to them and get more details if you want to. But I think uh, the process of paraffin first and hundred percent beeswax for the final coat is fairly common for a lot of people that do wax dipping of hive products. So, and if you can do that, if you've got the big system and you can do it, I think that would be a great way to go no matter what your hive configuration is. So if you can do that yourself or maybe get a member of your bee club to set up some kind of vat. I think Cayman Reynolds is using an old chicken scalder uh, that he repurposed so that he could use it for wax dipping. It's gonna make a mess, so but I think somebody could make money offering that at the right time of year. So here we go, question number five. This comes from Tony. My name is Tony and started beekeeping two years ago. I'm in Western New York, not too far from you. Well, I made a bonehead mistake this weekend and I set up a swarm trap a couple of hundred feet from my apiary and caught a swarm. I then neglected it for the past month, not taking it down in a reasonable time. Life just got in the way. No excuses, I know. But my problem is I put the bees in a 10 frame box in my apiary, way too close to where I caught them. The foragers are now returning to where the hive was. Not all of them, but enough. Any ideas would be helpful. I thought about putting a hive trap back up and transferring them back to the new box where I moved them to maybe using temp queen and so on. Okay. Temp Queen, by the way, I'm getting a lot of uh, comments about Temp Queen that's showing that people may not really understand the purpose of Temp Queen. Uh, so I'm going to address that first. So, Temp Queen is just what it says it's a temporary queen. So, we shouldn't have that in a swarm trap. And we shouldn't put it in a box where we hope to keep a queen bee. Uh, because now we have in theory by pheromone alone we have competing queens so a queen right colony would be hesitant to move into a cavity that has temp queen there and so we've also learned that by putting that pheromone out on tree branches and things like that um, that we can attract swarm bees so in other words workers that are with the swarm they divert away from the primary swarm and they go to a tree branch that has this conflicting pheromone that lets them know that they think there's another queen there so they cling to that for a period of time. So this is not a swarm trap lure. The reason for temp queen is that uh, if you have a colony that you suspect or know for a fact is queen less and you don't want your worker bees to become laying workers, we put temp queen in there and it, it keeps them going thinking that there is a queen present even though they can't physically find her the pheromone convinces them that a queen is present and it suppresses their reproductive organs so in other words the workers will not activate their ovaries and become laying workers which produce then drones and create a hostile climate when you do go to introduce a queen so what it does it holds the bees makes them think that there's a queen there and they will continue to invest in infrastructure until you actually install a real queen and to do that you remove the temp queen 24 hours to 72 hours ahead of time before you put your new laying queen in there so that's the purpose of that stuff this uh topic on uh swarms uh being collected into a swarm trap and then left too long has come up for more than one person so i'm going to talk about that you need to when you put up a swarm trap and for those of you who don't know what that is when the bees are swarming out of a hive and the queen is leaving and a percentage of that colony is going with her to start a new colony somewhere else. Uh, They look for another cavity to move into and that's why we put up swarm traps, boxes, roughly 10 gallons of interior space and then the scouts find that space suitable and then the swarm moves in with the existing queen. So she's a usually a laying queen after swarms can have an infertile uh, virgin queen with them, who later will go and do mating flights from the new location. But for the most part, it's a laying queen who's left a colony that was heavily populated. They split. They're starting a new colony. So when they go into the swarm trap, you need to have uh, a security camera on that swarm trap, or a motion camera like game and trail cameras that alert your phone. Uh, Also, so that you can check in with your cell phone. So all my security cameras on my property, I check in from the cell phone, I can see what's going on. And bees can activate these cameras. They're motion activated and when the temperature changes, you actually get some bee activity on there sometimes, depending on the sensitivity of the camera. But the reason I wanna know right away or have them on your hiking path where you're gonna see them every day at least. When the swarm moves in, Because you're going to relocate them to your apiary, and in this case, just a couple hundred yards away. Or is it a couple hundred feet? Anyway, uh, you want to move them into one of the hives in your apiary right away. And also, you want to replace the trap at the same time if you can. If you've got multiple traps, it's a huge bonus because other scouts from other colonies may be seeking the same cavity. So, and the reason you do that right away is because once they get established there with their queen, and once they're set up and they start building infrastructure inside that um, swarm trap, they're also scouting the area, and this has become home. So once several days have passed, they're building comb, the queen is probably laying eggs now, and they're invested in that location. So now if you take them away and move them to another spot, you've got this conflicted uh, behavior with the bees, where if you do it right away, take that swarm away, and then you say, "Well, Fred, what about the foragers that are out that come back? Uh, This is why you do it at night or very early in the morning before sunrise, by the way, so you have maximum numbers when you do the transportation. But other foragers that come back, when they find it empty, this is why it happens right away, they still remember where they came from so now with that gone or with a new one installed that's empty they think ah they moved on without us and now they go back to their original colony that they left from so we don't end up with a bunch of uh, worker bees that are kind of nomads now they don't know where they where to go Uh, the colony moved while they weren't there or you've got workers and foragers in the new location that have already acclimated to that swarm location and they keep going back to it which is kind of what's being described here So long story short, even though I kind of gave you a long story, uh, get them out of their swarm trap location as quickly as possible and into your hive and your final apiary as quickly as possible. Now, what if it's been too long and what if they've been there and I can only check them, it's our summer camp and we only go on weekends and it looks like they've been there four days or something. Now, what do we do? Well, another thing that you can do again at night, close them up with a screen, take the whole hive and take them at least three or more miles away and to a friend's property and put them there again for a couple of weeks and let them do their thing there. And then after, you have to consider the age of the foragers that are in there. At this time of year, they might be foraging for four weeks. So it's as long as their memory is, as long as they live. So if you leave them out there for three or four weeks at this other property farther away, Then you can close them up at night again and bring them all the way back to your apiary. I know that's a lot of moving parts. It's much easier to get that swarm out of that trap right away after they occupy it. So, But that's the other thing. So move them miles away so that they have to reacclimate. And of course, that whole time, they're still building infrastructure. They're still uh, building brood and everything because they're in a hive. So now you're not losing time with them, if that makes sense, I hope. So believe it or not, that was the last question for today. So we're already in the fluff category. So my first complaint right now is with Dr. Leo Sharashkin. Okay, so I have a layin's hive. We have horizontal hives, I like them. I have the long langstroth hive. And I've uh, said it before, the long langstroth has frames that are deep. So I do all deep langstroth frames in my long lang and it has 30 full frames of bees right now. So that's a huge pain. Um, and I understand, people are like, well, I'm glad that's your problem that you have too many bees, too much honey, too many resources. And the other thing is, but see, if I want to fortify another colony from that long Langstroth, I just pull the deep brood frames, uh, keep the ones I want, keep the queen in there, and I can fortify another colony that might be lacking this time of year and I can put those frames in that other Langstroth deep brood box. Switch them around all I want, same apiary. Now the problem is with the land's hive. So, the land's hive, what do I think about it? Um, Because we didn't didn't feed them because there was no real good way set up for them to be fed. Uh, What did I put in there? Back in May, we put a swarm in the land's hive. And had a tiny bit of infrastructure built, maybe three frames partially drawn comb, Because we did a late, late attempt last year and they just were doomed. So this year with the Landshive, hive, we put a swarm in there and uh, they just did a great job. So I showed inspections. I'm trying to keep up with those and make videos. So you can see the progress in there. And uh, during the last inspection, there were so many bees, so much brood uh, that I went ahead and included all 20 deep lay-ins frames, and then moved the divider board all the way to the end. Somebody said, why did you even leave the divider board in there at all? And that's because the tops of the frames form a barrier that the bees can't get past. So when you open the lid, no bees get up out of there, and by putting your follower board at the very end, uh, created a barrier right up against the frame, so now the bees are coming out. So now, uh the land's hive and the reason i'm griping about it is because uh, the bees are doing too well in it if that's possible full frames of honey full frames of bees full frames of brood and uh, we'll do a video coming up because of course i had to go to horizontalhive.com because i can't just split this colony and put them in a standard langstroth hive or a Long Lang or another horizontal configuration, it has to be a Layens hive. So I had to go there and buy another Layens hive with the 20 frames. So it's the biggest one he offers. If he had a bigger one, I would have bought it. Dr. Leo, if you're listening, 20 frames is not enough. So, it's, cause it's full, it's absolutely full of honey. The bees of course are concentrated towards the entrance. At the end of this video today, I'm gonna show you a time-lapse video uh, that shows how the bees all come out you know they spend the night out on the face of it and the sun comes up they all go back in they migrate around and stay on the shaded sides of the hive and uh, but they're just doing fantastic in there and uh, so the lands hive it's a success it's super insulated uh, insulated with uh, sheep's wool and so i ordered the exact same configuration i'm not going to be painting another landscape on it i think i'm just going to treat it with eco wood or something and we're gonna put it out in the same field and I'm gonna do a split. So we'll video the whole thing and we'll talk about it and going through that. So if you're not a subscriber already, this would be a good time for you to subscribe if you don't wanna miss what we do with the land's hive. But uh, we're gonna do the split because we've got enough time for that. They can make a new queen, 30 days out, you know, we're into August. They'll have the whole latter part of August, the whole month of September and into October to make their preparations for winter. And I'm 100% okay. 99.9 percent confident that the split from that colony is going to do extremely well and the swarm where did that come from also my own apiary so these are my own i'm just circling my own genetics in here and of course when a queen flies out and mates with somebody else hopefully that happens in spring when we at least have winter hardy colonies around here and that's what the case is with that one it was my queen that wintered and so when they swarmed out, I moved them into the Land's hive, which means the hive that they came out of had to make a new queen, and they're doing very well. So that's it too. So the you know, the words, the whys here for beekeepers, uh, if you're just starting out, this is something I have to kind of think of. If I was just now starting out, would I do just the Land's hive, knowing that it works in my climate? No. And that's because there are still things that I like about Langstroth hives. I still like flow hives, the flow supers, a very easy way to get honey off. With the um, layon's hive, if I were starting fresh, of course the extractor I get, I would get from horizontalhive.com because it'll handle the lay-ins frames and all the deep frames, brood frames, all the Langstroth frames, so everything fits that way. But I have a power extractor already, and the biggest frames it'll take are the Langstroth deeps. So if I were doing it over again, because the price was comparable, by the way, and uh, I would have purchased the Leans, because I was thinking of the Leans centrifugal extractor as a specialty extractor. In other words, it would only be for the Leans frames. But then I thought, no, it can actually handle everything else. So that would be the catch-all extractor. So. If you're thinking about pulling the trigger on an extractor and you're undecided on what kind of hives you're going to keep, the Land's extractor handles all of it. So if I were doing it over, I would buy the Land's extractor. I mean, I don't know longevity or how well it works, or but I can't imagine them selling something that would break down. So if you're doing your final splits and stuff now, we have a big nectar flow ahead. If you're going to do treatments, if you're a treatment beekeeper, then... This is the period you're running out of time now where you need to do splits where they can still build up at least where I live and make it through winter. Um, so those of you that are going to do treatments for mites and things like that, the big nectar flows come in so you pull off your spring. If you're using a treatment that's not allowed to have honey supers on, pull the spring honey that's still on the hives because we have a surplus now, where I am anyway. Uh, if you're not sure and you're just about starting with bees, you wanna know, will my area? have a dearth? Well, my area, and we've got some weird weather patterns this year, so some people are probably facing challenges that they otherwise wouldn't have if the weather hadn't been the way it is. But if you go to beescape.org, b-e-e-s-c-a-p-e.org, and put in your information about where you live, and find out how well your environment ranks as far as nectar flows, environmental resources for bees that swarm that that you don't catch what are their chances of making it in the wild Uh, everything is defined there what kind of agricultural pressure is there going to be on your bees in other words what kind of pesticides what kind of herbicides and insecticides are being used in your area and so what are you facing that's a great resource for that and the more people that join it the more information they have and the more accurate the information they present to you is going to be So we're running out of time. And one of the reasons too that I'm going to press on this uh, this week is because um, we're not just worried about their ability to store resources. Uh, Some people are doing brood breaks uh, so that you can do a single oxalic acid vaporization treatment. July was a perfect month to do that. And then what you do is you end up with a very tiny uh, varroa destructor mite load going beyond this month so now we have healthier bees that are capable of longer life more resources per bee being brought to the hive because this all ties into the health and well-being of the bee itself individual bees so that's why if you you just feel like i don't want to treat for mites i'm just going to they look strong i'm just going to see what they can do well as the brood builds up going into the next nectar flow you will also be building up the numbers of road instructor mites with the brood So that's why at the end of the year, what's going to happen? At the end of the year, the queen is going to start to back off on her production, so her egg production will fall off, and the nurse bees will be holding down the fort on that, because fewer resources are coming through. And then so now we have smaller brood areas, and where do all these mites that are in that colony, where do they want to be? They want to be in the brood for reproduction. That's why you all of a sudden get these incredibly high mite numbers, because there are fewer numbers of bees in the hive going into fall and winter than there were this time of year, for example, or next month. And so with fewer bees, fewer resources for the varroa destructor mites to feed on and fewer brood for them to occupy. So mites end up getting into every single brood cell, potentially, if there's thousands of mites in there. Not saying that they are. I'm just saying that if you're going to control mites, this is the zone. This is the time frame to do it in the Northern United States. So, and for the treatment-free people, then people like Dr. Tom Seeley, who talk about the Darwinian beekeeping practices, I happen to like what he says there. Um, If you're trying to be treatment-free, then you still have to remove those colonies that are suffering from massive mite loads before they can spread through the rest of your apiary and the rest of the bees that you have or be robbed out and overwhelmed by a neighbor's bees because they won't appreciate your colony getting robbed and then your Varroa destructor mites jumping ship when they finished all their treatments and they did the stuff they wanted to do to get their mites under control. And now they rob your colony and bring it all back. See, this is why regional areas, if we get like-minded beekeepers that can at least uh, agree on bee stock that's Varroa resistant or you can come up with treatment regimens to where everyone is kind of treating at the same time because now the mites have nowhere to go and that would be kind of a good thing. So next thing is the shout out for today. Now this is going to be the shout out is a website. These are beekeepers that get together and they do interviews and they're called the stream team and uh, they do shout outs and stuff. And, but what they're doing is they're kind of unifying beekeepers on YouTube. So those of you who are out learning about bees and we met these people, um, at the hive life conference, which by the way, is coming up next year. Check out hive life. I think it's com, but if you Google hive life conference, you'll find it. You'll see what's going on next year. There's a whole poster of all the speakers that are going to be there and you can tickets are on sale now for that. I'm going to that for sure. So anyway, but that's not my shout out, although that's a great place. If you're going to go to one B conference, that would be the one. EAS is coming up, and I haven't decided yet if I'm going to go to that. So anyway, there is a live chat coming up. Now, people often look at these videos or they look at my videos and say, when are you going to talk live? When, when can we catch you live? And why don't you announce it ahead of time and things like that? Well, my schedule is in constant flux, so it's hard for me. even schedule a live chat but there's live chat coming up and I'm gonna be involved with it so now I'm telling you ahead of time when is it gonna happen August the 3rd and it is stream team chat and I'm gonna be on there Uh, Brian is gonna be there Greg is gonna be there and Bruce is gonna be there so Brian is castle hives Greg is nature's image farm and Bruce is Bruce's bees So these are all YouTubers, beekeepers, and we're going to talk. And it's going to be live, so you can make your comments and post your questions and things like that. I'm going to put a link to that down below, but it is for your calendars, August the 3rd. What time? Usually their stream chats and things like that are 8 p.m. So I invite you to go and check those uh, channels out. Check out Castle Hives. Let them know that... uh, You think it's great that the beekeepers can get along and that we have this collective together. That's it for today. I hope you have a fantastic weekend. I wanna thank you for watching and stay tuned past the exit stuff if you wanna see a time-lapse sequence of what I'm dealing with with this lay-ins hive from Dr. Leo Sharashkin at HorizontalHive.com. Thanks for being here. Now, for those of you who don't like and want to promote things, time to turn away because I'm showing you the latest coffee cup mug that I designed. This is a photograph macro photo of a honeybee getting nectar from one of the flowers on a milkweed. And it's in super macro and it goes all the way around the cup. And so this is part of my series, the most popular coffee cup I've put out so far is the one of bees all over the mug so this is adding to that collection worker honeybee getting nectar from a milkweed so check that out there's a link down below it's being sold by teespring and if you type in fred ship f-r-e-d-s-h-i-p you get free shipping thanks